Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. We're looking at Lord's Day 17, question 45 in our Catechism class. And we're going to talk about the manner of the resurrection of Christ. We're still dealing with the seriously important doctrine of Christ's resurrection. Paul stresses its critical weightiness in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, when he includes it in the list of vital doctrines that must be believed, taught and confessed by every Christian believer and every church that calls itself Christian. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1-4 Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Our catechist deals with this in question 17. He's explaining the Apostles' Creed, and he asks in question 17, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? And the answer we must give is, first by his resurrection he has overcome death, so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power we too are raised up to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. In his practical application of doctrine, the Catechist demonstrates how Christ's resurrection benefits and blesses us. But in his own commentary on the Catechism, the main author, Zacharias Ursinus, steps back a little bit. He looks at other important aspects of the resurrection, and so must we. So we've already considered its importance as the underlying foundation of the Christian faith, and we have recounted the classic proofs of the resurrection, demonstrating beyond a shadow of a doubt its historical factuality. But there's a couple more issues that we must grapple with before we can get around to that practical application that we find in the Catechism. And one of those is the manner of Christ's resurrection. We need to ask some questions about how Christ rose from the grave. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast.
In this lesson, I have four main teaching points. And the first of those is that when Christ arose, he rose with his body and his soul reunited. Now, let me explain that. When we die, our body and soul are separated. Our body, as we know, goes into the ground and eventually it rots away. In other words, it returns to the dust from where it originally came. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Genesis 3 and 19. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thy return unto the ground, for out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. In Psalm 103 and verse 14, the psalmist tells us that God knows us and cares for us. He knows us intimately. He knows our frame. The psalmist says he remembereth that we are dust. But the soul lives on. The soul of the believer goes immediately into God's care to be with him in heaven. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. To the repentant thief on the cross, Jesus promised, in Luke chapter 23 and verse 43, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. So our bodies remain in the ground. Our DNA never perishes until resurrection day. When the Lord returns and we shall be reunited body and soul together and we shall be raised and our bodies made ready to dwell throughout eternity in a new heaven and earth. Paul speaks about this in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. He tells us there our citizenship is in heaven and from it, from heaven in other words, we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. But how do we know that such a reunion of body and soul after our death is possible? We know that because our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, has already done it. When he died, body and soul were separated. Luke 23 and verse 46. When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. But at his resurrection from the grave, Jesus body and soul were reunited to give us confidence that such a reunion of body and soul would be our portion too at Resurrection Day. Our second lesson is that when Christ arose, he arose as the same person. Now we've been learning a lot about the person of Christ. We call that discipline Christology the doctrine of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in a sense, we're still working our way through that. We learned that when he was here on this earth, Jesus was both fully God and fully man. When he died on the cross, he was still fully God and fully man. When he rose from the dead, Jesus was fully God and fully man. When he ascended into heaven, he was fully God and fully man. 
In other words, he still had a human body. It would be easy for us to think of the risen Christ as some kind of ghost or spectre, and some have fallen into that error. Perhaps that's because of those passages that tell us that he visited the disciples in a room with closed doors. John 20 and verse 19. In the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. John 20 and verse 26, After eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst. When you read on further down that same chapter, you will discover that not only did the disciples see and recognise Jesus, his physical appearance, but that Thomas was actually able to touch him, to examine his physical body, to touch his wounds with his hands. Verse 27 in that chapter, Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless but believing. And Thomas answered, and said unto him, My Lord and my God. A remarkable confession. For Thomas had earlier said that he would not believe if he could not touch Christ's physical wounds. It's even more obvious in the Luke account. Luke 24 and verse 39, Jesus says, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself handle me and see for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. He arose with a body of flesh and bones, a human body, and also with a human nature. When Jesus came into this world, he became one of us. He was like us in every respect, but as we have previously learned, without sin. He became, like us, a little lower than the angels. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 and down to verse 17, that's clearly stated. The Hebrew author says we see Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, so that he could suffer death. In all things, he had to be made like his brethren, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. When he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he took our humanity right into the very presence of God. He was still a man. So Paul could declare in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, speaking in the present tense, There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. There is a man in the glory. And that's important. For because he has taken our humanity into heaven, so we too can bring our humanity right into God's eternal kingdom. First Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22 says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. He was the first fruits of resurrection. 
we too will rise as he rose. Just be aware though, that in our resurrection we do not become gods as he is God. That would be a heresy. When he arose and ascended, Christ's humanity was not deified. It was a glorified humanity. He is still fully God and fully man, as he was before his death on the cross. So wait. We've got to try and figure this out. If Jesus rose as fully God and fully man, how can a human body with flesh and bones such as Thomas saw dwell eternally in heaven forever and ever? Because human bodies change and they grow old and they grow weary and they die and they decay. Well, Paul helps us to understand this. He teaches us that our bodies at resurrection day will be raised incorruptible. We will never again die. There will be no more sickness. There will be no cancer. There will be no heart disease. There will be no death. Listen to this triumphant passage from 1 Corinthians 15 verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. The dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortality must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. These resurrection bodies of ours will be like the resurrection body of Jesus. John agrees. In 1 John 3 and verse 2, he says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, incorruptible in every sense of the word, our bodies made fit to live forever in a new heaven and a new earth. third lesson is that Christ raised himself. Jesus had the power to raise himself from the dead, and because of that he has the power also to raise us from the dead on resurrection day. Now of course when we say that we are doing so in the understanding that the Trinity always acts together in concert, in complete unity of purpose and action. John 5 and verse 19 
Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he saith the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. John 5 and 21, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Now there may be an objection to this. Because we may say that God the Father raised Christ. After all, we are told in Romans 8 and 11, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Just as God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit work together at creation, the Father raised the Son through the agency and power of the Son himself. John chapter 10 and verse 18, Jesus said, No man taketh it from me, he's referring to his life. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. So we can say that Christ himself vanquished and defeated death when he rose. In John chapter 2 and verse 19 down to verse 21, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he spake of the temple of his body. Zacharias Ursinus himself wrote this, I quote, The Son was raised by the Father through himself. He himself raised himself by his Spirit. So, Ursinus. Well, we've been asking about how Christ rose, but there's one more lesson to learn. We have to ask, why did he rise on the third day? Now, the Apostles' Creed emphasises this. Let's think of its words. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified, dead and buried, he descended into the grave, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. But why? There's two reasons. The first was so that Old Testament prophecy would be fulfilled. Jesus himself refers to this in Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Then he took unto him the twelve, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on, and they shall scourge him and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. I wonder then, had Jesus been referring to the story of Jonah? Jonah, in some sense, is a type of Christ. Jonah to all intents and purposes, had died and been entombed in the belly of the great fish for three days, and on the third day in the sovereignty of God was restored to life. So Jesus said in Matthew 12 and verse 39, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So there's the first reason why he rose on the third day, so that Old Testament prophecy would be perfectly fulfilled. The second reason is because it was also prophesied that his body would not see any corruption, any decay. Psalm 16 and verse 10 For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, or in hell, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Three days was, in God's design and plan, the correct time period for Christ's entombment. If it had been any shorter than that, there may have been cause for doubt among people. People may have started to dispute his actual death. Three days in the tomb, he was dead. Any longer than that, and in a natural death, decay would have begun. So this third day resurrection was the sign to the disciples and to the Jews, and of course to us, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one who the Old Testament points forward to, the one that's promised to us in the Scriptures, God's suffering servant, our Saviour from our sins. In Christ, all God's wonderful promises have been fulfilled and guaranteed, and God has stamped his seal of approval on his atoning work. So we've seen something of the manner of Christ's resurrection. In our next lesson, we shall persevere with Zacharias Ursinus' commentary on the Catechism, and we'll think about the purpose of Christ's resurrection. <laughs>